thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to God, Law, and Liberty. And today, we're starting a new series that I think you're really going to enjoy, and I think you will find it fascinating. It will help you put into context all the things that are going on in our society, why we seem to be falling apart. And I'm going to entitle it, The Rule of Law. Essentially, what I will be going over in the next several episodes is what is really the rule of law? What is necessary to have the rule of law? You know, in America, we pride ourselves on being a nation under the rule of law, that no man's above the law. Uh, but in reality, we no longer have the rule of law. The rule of law doesn't really exist in America anymore. We use the word, much like Shirley MacLaine uses the word God, but we're not talking the same thing that was understood to be the rule of law, that actually said that the king was under the law, that there were things the king could not do. Today, we only say we can do whatever we can get a majority of votes to do. And as long as we get the majority, that's the law. We follow the rules. That's the rule of law. Well, that's not the rule of law. There's nothing to constrain the law of men to that which would be just and right and good. And some of this we will couch particularly in the context of the legal brief that we recently submitted to the United States Supreme Court uh, in the case of Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organizations, the case that the Supreme Court will decide next year as to whether to continue its train of abuse of rights and the right to life found in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So we want to take a look at that brief and some of the things that are said in it and put them in a right and proper context to understand the rule of law and its erosion in our nation so that you will better understand what's going on in our nation, what our politicians and our jurists are doing right and mostly wrong, and how to correct it, to see through the errors of the way, and for us to begin to chart a new way forward to restore, to rebuild the walls that have crumbled that supported the rule of law. So I hope you will enjoy this series. Now, uh, let's, let's dig in with uh, a couple of statements from the brief. The brief I'm referring to is the one that uh, Thomas Smith and I wrote on behalf of 22 state policy organizations in support of overturning Roe versus Wade. You can find that brief if you go to our website, factennessee.org, that's factennessee.org, and the banner at the top of the webpage mentions the briefs. Click on it. It'll take you to the page with the two briefs we worked on. So if you went to our brief, the most important part of the brief in some ways, relative to what we're going to be talking about over these next few weeks, the rule of law, is found in the statement of interest of the Amici Curiae. In other words, where Amici Curiae is the friends of the court, okay? And in the very first sentence, we make this statement. 
that the organizations seek to educate citizens and state legislators on public policies that address most closely who we are as human beings. Grounding our advocacy is the pre-positive anthropology resident in customary and natural law. Now, that's written for the court and Supreme Court justices, but let me translate that for you. What we're saying is that we work to educate citizens on public policies that are connected to who we are as human beings, and all policies have to be connected to who we are as human beings. Going back to Justinian's code in the Roman period, when he tried to synthesize the law, he said the law is for persons and therefore it must be concerned with understanding what persons are. So we have to have an understanding of what it means to be a person, to be a human being, because that's who the law is made for, for the regulation and the conduct of human beings and their social interaction with one another. Now, in Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court said, well, we don't really know what a person is. Uh, we don't know about these matters of when life begins and all that. Uh, looking within the Constitution, all we see is that persons have a right to, to bear arms and to not incriminate themselves and a right to jury trial. So persons must be those who are born. And so what our brief is saying, no, 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 no. There's an understanding of what it means to be human that's pre constitutional, pre-positive law. It is an understanding of what it means to be human that is found or resident in customary and natural law. Now, what does that statement mean? It's referring to customary law would be the common law, the customs and maxims and things that we've learned over centuries that we've said this is the way we do things in our society. We hold these things to be true because of our experience and our customary relations between one another. And of course, natural law would be the law of nature and nature's God, referred to in the Declaration of Independence, that there is a law that pertains to our human nature that's been imposed upon that human nature that we don't create. So that's the first thing that we're saying in this brief that's important. The other thing that's very important in this section of our brief is that we, we say that the court's view of liberty, the liberty to abort, the liberty for two people of the same sex to get a marriage license, we say it repudiates the natural and common law commitments to what it means to be human that undergird our advocacy and, as we show in the brief, undergird our very Constitution. And the rule of law, which, as I said, we'll be covering in this series. Now, the other thing that's important to understand in this section of our brief is that it says that the reduction of persons represented by the court's abortions decisions has leavened the law. It's affected the law in a way that curtails the historic state policies that are grounded in deference to a given human nature, and the common law rights that correspond to that nature. Okay, now let me make sure you understand what we're saying. The court has created its own positivistic, its own positing of what it means to be human, okay, and it's leavened the law in such a way that it's changed the law so that no longer can states have policies that are enacted based on and in light of a given human nature, 
and those customary and natural laws that responded to that given human nature. The very first sentence of the Supreme Court's decision in 2015 in Obergefell versus Hodges is that the liberty provided in the Constitution provides the liberty for persons to define and express their identity. Well, that makes everything, the human person, subjective-oriented. We've talked a lot about subjective-oriented theology, subjective-oriented views of the world. Everything is in my own little universe, and I get to decide my own little universe, and the Constitution gives me that authority and that authority to every person. So how do you have unity at all when everybody can come up with their own subjective understanding of what it means to be human, and there is no real objective given understanding of what it means to be human? That's what we're talking about here. When the Supreme Court decided in Roe that the unborn were not persons, were not human beings, that they didn't become persons and human beings subject to law until some point declared by the court in combination with medical science, it, it threw away our whole history of tradition of law and what it meant to be human. Okay? So we proceed in the brief to say this severe distortion of the human person in constitutional case law invites systemic effects well beyond the troubled context of abortion. What are we saying there? In other words, you didn't keep this repudiation of what it means to be human, the givenness of being human in the area of abortion. It's now spread systemically into other areas. So you see, what happened here, this leavening effect, the systemic effect, spreading out through other areas of the law, is that when you, when you redefine what it means to be human and what it means to be a mother, and you say that those things are based upon the subjective determinations of the autonomous woman, then you're going to have to change the understanding of what it means to be a father. Well, in 1976, in the Danforth case, the Supreme Court held that well, even though you're married and even though you're the father of the child, you cannot have any input in the woman's decision to abort your child. Right there, they redefined what it meant to be married. They said marriage is not some organism, but it is an association of two separate people who don't lose their identity. So see, right there, right there, 1976, they really began the redefinition of marriage but it was consistent with the idea. We've already redefined what it means to be human. We've already redefined what it means to a mother. Now we have to redefine what it means to be a father. And once you redefine what it means to be a mother and a father, you'll eventually have to redefine what it means to be a husband and wife. And oh, that's exactly what happened in 2015. And that's why we're now seeing transgenderism is a constitutional right. If you think you're a boy, even though biologically you're a girl and your anatomy is still that of a girl, you're a boy. And to discriminate between the girl who thinks he's a boy and the boy who thinks he's a boy because he is a boy is unconstitutional. You see, that's the leavening effect and the systemic effects that we're talking about here in the introduction to our brief. So, not only that, notice what we next say. If constitutional precept commands states to treat nascent human life, unborn life, as vacant of meaning and value apart from subjective individual determination, 
referring, of course, to the mother, or to the court's authorization, it has concurrently placed in doubt the historic understanding of law as constrained by a reality prior to and beyond its coercive impositions. That's referring there, my friends, by another means and by different words to the rule of law. The coercive implications of, of, of law are no longer constrained by anything. He who has the power is the law. The king is above the law, not the king is under the law. Then we conclude in this section. A national abortion enablement policy is mournful in itself. In other words, just having abortion is mournful in itself, but it does not keep to itself. It corrodes the law altogether. And in other words, the Supreme Court, which should be the bastion and the protector, the vanguard of the rule of law, has by its pronouncements over the last 50 years destroyed the rule of law. And for the next few weeks, we're going to take a look at what was the foundation of the rule of law, and you will see in it how we have abandoned the rule of law in America, and it is simply a connotation word devoid of any meaning. And if it is not recovered by politicians and lawyers and jurists who understand it and fight for it, who knows when it will be recovered. But it will not be recovered without great loss and sacrifice. Thank you for joining me, and I'll look forward to having you join me again next week on God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.